1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
2: Yeah, they were. Dandelion Records. There we go. So that that's Stat- Waddy.
0: What a great name.
2: Oh, it's a brilliant name. And, uh, and it has to be pronounced, of course, in a Pelian way. Waddy, <laughs> From <Step-Waddy>. Timberley,
0: Cheshire. <laughs> <laughs> they said that they were. they're, they're, they're of a piece with those groups who kind of... In my mind, they're always playing Fox in Potter's Bar, and it's 1973. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're probably on a bill. They're probably
2: on a bill with Tucky Buzzard. Do you remember Tucky, Tucky Buzzard? I do, A Brewers
0: Droop. <laughs> 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 That's Tucky, right. Tucky Buzzard, who, who who put out an album produced by Bill Wyman, I think which gloried in the title Warm Slash. That's brilliant. And then they wondered (laughs) why bothering the chart compiler. But 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 Patrick Crowther's written to to us about Stackwaddy, and uh, he says, In a recent podcast you mentioned Stackwaddy, a band whose Uv has escaped me thus far. In looking through the track listing for their supposedly seminal work Bugger Off... On Dandelion, as you said. Funny in itself. (laughs) I can't believe that. We thought we'd call the album bugger off. All right, fine. Okay. I was struck by... Here comes the song titles. I was struck by Meat Pies Have Come But Band's Not Here Yet and The Girl From Ipanema. And The Girl
2: From (laughs) Ipanema.
0: What a combo. (laughs) It's It's fantastic, fantastic, isn't it? Shall we try? Uh, do you know what? The, you know our lady friend who comes up with the musical selections according to my voice. Oh, command. Alexa, let's try her on Stack Waddy. Well, let's try. She's. I'm gonna. Try, are you ready for this? Okay. Yeah, I am. Alexa, I be very, very surprised if she's ever heard of them. Play Stack Playing songs by Stack Waddy from
1: Spotify. Crikey!
0: That's that, That's Stack Waddy. No. All right.
1: Yeah, that.
2: No, it can't. She's actually, she's heard of Stack 1.
0: Alexa, stop for crying out loud! Alexa, that stop. That is
2: absolutely astonishing. My God, what? I mean, what? I mean, what, <laughs> what, what, what would that have been? My God. Well, let's, uh, hey, let's repossession boogie, the... boogie. Mama, let's keep your big the... mouth shut. I'm just looking at the track list here. <laughs>
0: Let's follow uh, through on our notional bill at Tharks in Potter's Bar in 1973. Let's try the next one. Are you ready? Okay. Alexa, on. play Tucky Buzzard. Playing songs by Tucky Buzzard from Spotify.
1: This is extraordinary. Yes, it started.
0: There you go. There you go. Good grief.
2: Well, I am. take my hat off to Alexa. Her her uh, knowledge of both rock and pop is considerably broader than I imagined it was. That's
0: absolutely <laughs> It's absolutely astonishing. Tucky Buzzard. Well, if we're there's we're any member of Tucky Buzzard
2: listening in the unlikely event, they'll be thrilled to think that in some small corner of a foreign field, Alexa is, um, you know holding a guttering candle to their memory.
0: Yeah, I don't know if they get Wonderful. the full streaming rate if I played less than 30 seconds. I <laughs> <They're> probably, probably <laughs> gonna, don't get the fraction of a penny. The 0.002
2: pence pays into the,
0: bugger, <laughs> b-
2: the t- Tucky buzzard
0: exchequer <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, talking of uh, band finances, if if you're interested in band finances, which I'm personally always interested in band finances... We recorded the word in your attic with uh, with Miles Hunt. Uh, with Miles, the yes. Family of the only Wonder Stuff, the other day, which will be flying this weekend, and uh, and he's got a fantastic story there about bands of VAT, the like of which I've never heard. It it opened up a whole new world of uh, a band uh, finances to me that did didn't it you.
2: It did, and the message was: anybody in the band is keep receipts for absolutely everything. Absolutely, Literally every half pint of everything. beer, every every twenty Marlborough, whatever you know, because Miles did keep his receipts, and uh, on the strength of that, bought himself. You'll maybe have to listen to the podcast and find out, but bought himself. A you've fine got to, you've property, got, you've got a,
0: It's yeah. really he was a terrific guest. Do you see? He's, he's out fabulous. there in Sh- in Shropshire. Shropshire. Um, Doing his kind of lockdown sessions and so forth on, on Facebook and uh, and uh, keeping body and soul together by by going to the local campsite shop. I love that idea. You just have a Tesco or Sainsbury's.
2: <laughs> he goes to buying a campsite food that shop. I thought had been banned. He's been living on. He bought a can of spam, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. And declared it quite nice. It's Literally and he tweeted a picture inventive. of himself proudly holding a a, a a can of spam. I thought that really is that's that's hard times, isn't it? That's no, the wartime spirit. Brilliant.
0: So what else what else have we got in Reader's Correspondence? Anything else you care to read?
2: About? Uh Reader's Correspondence, let me have a look. I've got a very America. funny thing from Andrew Pearson. Did you see that? Andrew Pierce wrote back. We were talking about working in in record shops. Now people get used to going before Shazam and try and sing the lines from the songs. He was a human Shazam.
0: Yes, a human
2: Shazam. You remember somebody coming in asking for a record called Long Long Live the Leaves, which was meant to be the Who live at live at Leeds, and somebody asked for (laughs) the News of the World Symphony. That's brilliant, isn't it? Uh, And the the I'm I'm Inclined at Night music, which is terrific. (laughs) If this was a, if this was a, um, you know, a piece in a magazine, the headline would be the loneliest monk. And he also added, that's right. In, he worked in Bristol in the nineteen seventies, and they have a strange dialect in Bristol, which involves adding the the letter L to the end of words, which they still have actually. A great ideal, they say, don't they? I've got a great ideal. He said uh, examples could be Africal or Frank Sinatra, etc. He says composure left the building on the day we were asked for Handel's Missile. <laughs> that's good, isn't it? miss Missile, please. That's really funny. So, we had a nice we saw from Jane the... Plowman. Did you see Jane Plowman said that everyone should go back and listen to the Nick Lowe podcast. She said it was really good. And why don't we do something on Frank Zappa? Well, that's partly because David Hepworth's not an enormous enthusiast about Frank no, it's Zappa. Not. Do you know, and...
0: I, this is Well, you I've like hot Frank rapper That's
2: about it. I've it?
0: also. No, I, I speak. I've been. I, I saw Frank Zappa in 1971 So when they made the live album i I saw oh, him at really? the uh, at the Coliseum in London when they used to have Sunday night gigs at the coliseum um, and that was when he had um, Flo and Eddie in the group and so forth and all the all, oh, yeah, of, yeah. Uh, all the all the mud shark stuff and all the smutty stuff about groupies and everything we used to think that was absolutely corking Hilarious. Was. before anybody decided to dis- disapprove um, so right. you know i i i can I can mix it about Frank Zappa with the best of them, albeit I'm not—I'm I'm a class below you when it comes to knowing about Frank Zappa. Zappa. Nerd. Oh, drink of water, drink of water. Suddenly,
2: um, uh, Andy MacArthur wrote a nice thing saying people should go back and listen to the—I can't remember which one it was—the <coughs> Van Morrison story that we, we told him on the podcast about him turning <laughs> up at a, at a party. Do you remember in a, an old overcoat and a flat cap? And somebody opened the door and said, "Has anybody ordered a taxi?" <laughs> which
0: is just,
2: which is just absolutely brilliant of him.
0: Yeah, he just—he cannot help looking like a minicab driver, can he? It's just. mini no, uh, minicab driver. I oh, know.
2: And you mentioned it, that the Sid Griffin and the Johnny Rogan ones were good to listen to. Johnny Rogan and Sid Griffin on the birds. Oh right, yes, yes. And we've got, well, no, we've it, got a it, Dutch. It's a, she thinks she's our first Dutch subscriber. The girl said, I've been fangirling you for, since t- 2010, if not longer. Good luck with pronouncing my first name. Think Meringue. She's called
0: Meringue Vaar. <laughs> Think Meringue. It? Very good. She's been listening meringue. since Think 2010. Meringue. That's very good. And it was yep. only the other day that I discovered uh, that I was actually found myself listening to the very first one that we ever did. Which we recorded. Oh, okay. In we, at the desk it, that I'm sitting at I'm sitting at right now and uh where you you were you and your lady wife were out for a Sunday lunch and I said before we start let's go upstairs we're just gonna record half an hour of a thing called a podcast and you said, What's that? And I just said, Don't worry, we'll 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 just do it. <laughs> don't worry, it don't worry. Don't yes, yes. well, worry, your pretty little head. And uh, and yeah, we did yeah. it and put it out, and that was two thousand we and six, two thousand and six. I think we, we were, were go west. Yeah, you know, it was, it was long we before you know, all the lad. newspapers had long before columns. Yeah, we well, were. There. No, I think it's. Just, I, th- I think we should do. You know, we should pat ourselves on the back for that. You know, we, we should. started, we and we're a still doing on it. Our own trumpet. And we you know, are. so and it's very so. It's very nice to know that uh, we we we, even in Holland, that they're talking about us, or uh, one person who's That's talking to it? themselves about us. One person, called uh, Mering. <laughs> yes, S called yeah. Mering.
1: This is a lockdown special from the Word. You ain't going nowhere.
0: Uh, should we hand out our regular so lockdown, lockdown awards. awards? Lockdown awards. Yes, we should. to, to recognise those. Uh, Musical artists who have uh, taken advantage of the the current situation to kind of invite us into their homes ostensibly to witness musical performances, but really what we 're all tuning in for is to look at what the houses are like know, look around kind their kind kitchen I mean, absolutely it 's as simple as that, and uh, the winner surely in that respect being John Fogerty. <laughs>
2: John Fogerty and his two sons and his daughter uh, in their supposedly their back garden, which is actually in Ventura County, California, It's just up from uh, from Los Angeles. If anyone's not seen this, just just find it on YouTube. It's absolutely fantastic. It's him playing green because they're doing this and, Well, they're doing and this' they're they're They shift about the it.
0: houses. no, but they, they, they they're doing a load of different ones where they they, uh, they record in different uh, regions of the property every time you know sometimes it's in a studio sometimes it's in a living room and kitchen whatever this particular one was outside and what was no what was apparently their barbecue spot wasn't it really mark because he had a it's fantastic a they're fire literally they they're, they're they're toasting
2: marshmallows on an open fire and behind them is just what appears to be about 100 square miles of verdant kind of you know mountain filled <laughs> landscape the vast amount of which you imagine is probably owned by, um, you know, the by John Fogerty himself, Fogerty Fogarty Fogarty. J, and the so... J, and the the other the other thing I noticed was these kids are just so. Oh, the two boys are just gorgeous. They they, they they look like those archetypal kind of dusty hippies. They must be in their mid twenties. They look like two members of the group Stillwater, who appeared in the film Almost Famous, the Cameron Crow film. Do you remember that classic look, kind of? M- yep, moustache yep. and kind of, you know, Dickie Betts kind of longish hair. They look just gorgeous, don't they? It's great. By the way, I must plug, if you're talking about Credence, th- my favourite clip of them is I Put a Spell on You on YouTube, which is an amazing version of that old uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins uh, song. And it's, oh, God, what a fantastic group. Don't you think Credence Clearwater? I mean, what's, what is arguably, Long Arguably, Arguably the best group ever. I mean, John Fogarty, there was no... It's interesting. He's up there with Prince in some degrees. in Prince could produce and Prince could write songs and he could play any instrument and uh, and he could sing and he could dance. And John Fogarty could do most... John Fogarty, fabulous looking, brilliant instrumentalist, incredible songwriter, great brand lead, band leader, amazing presence. Just He just had the whole package.
0: Phenomenal guy. It's funny, while you, talking write, about it? while you talk about his kids, though, um, who you can't help thinking are probably the kids of a... Of a marriage quite late in life because I would have thought he, so. You, you would have thought so because he's got to be, I mean, he's well into his 70s. I, I don't know his exact date of birth. Yeah, he must be mid 70s, He must be. Uh, but his kids, clearly, you know, what's happened in the last few months uh, since lockdown is is that young people are either young people in their 20s and 30s. Are either locked down in their uh, in their pokey little flats in hipster areas of London, San Francisco, God knows where, or they're back home with the mum and dad, where they're getting fed properly and there's yeah. probably their laundry's done and there might even be a garden, you know. And, yeah. and John Fogerty's kids are looking like, all right, we've got to sit here with dad every night while he does what or of favourites, and we've got to dutifully play acoustic guitar. But, but look on the upside, where we are! <laughs> yeah, look,
2: <laughs> where we are. it's a nice view, and uh, oh, is that is that steak I smell sizzling on the barbecue?
0: Excellent! <laughs> and no, all their really mates' have been looking with great envy of, of yeah. you know. So, it's their houses that are the key? The key thing. Well, uh, have you seen the You've I think you've
2: seen that the Sophie Ellis Baxter haven't you? Sophie Ellis Baxter do that kitchen disco thing, which again I thoroughly recommend to anyone who's not seen it. And she does these things where uh, I, also what a kitchen!
0: Dave, her kitchen has a glitter ball in it. It has a pinball machine. It's well, also fantastic. when I the one the one I saw, she was wearing a fabulous sparkly frock, wasn't she? Clearly, she stage wears an a, a, a amazing array of kind of stage,
2: kind of tinselly, glittery kind of seventies disco. Dresses. She looks
0: sensational.
2: She looks incredible. Um, i don't know—old she is, but she, she looks about eighteen, doesn't she? She's got five kids. She Still
0: looks about eighteen. It's amazing. amazing not a, Not only. Mark oh, has she got five kids? She has got five boys. Yes, five boys. That's like the five old boys. boys. What are the chances? Uh, I don't. I don't know anybody who's got guess. five <laughs> yeah. boys. Isn't that you astonishing? Know, five it, boys. Five boys. It reminds me of the old Friars chocolate. Do you remember? You're not old enough to remember that. Friars used to market a chocolate called Five Boys. It was.
2: No, I and don't remember
0: used, that. It used to have... Uh, I've got a picture of it in front of me. It used to have um, a picture of, uh, of uh, five boys who were uh, in varying, varying, stage, varying stages of their, uh, their journey towards Fry's chocolate. And I think they, they, yeah, they, <laughs> well, <laughs> they, the stages were desperation, pacification, expectation, acclamation, realisation. It's Fry's. So there you go. Fries, five. That's balls. wonderful. That's a genius. So that's a Quite complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're, back in the Edwardian era, they could have thought to be complicated about things like that. So, yeah, so Sophie Ellis to in a fabulous oh, kitchen with her Single fabulous old, children, uh, children dancing in the background things. and so
2: forth. Which is a great version of her doing a few of my favourite things from Sound of Music. This is just brilliant. A waltz. So she's kind of waltzing around the kitchen.
0: And And she looks sensational. Whenever the dog
2: barks, one of her little little kids uh, arrives with the dog's head on. (laughs) It's just, oh, it's good. She won a trooper. She really is the Force's favourite. Don't you think? Sophie ellis Baxter? she wins. Absolutely brilliant.
0: Another good one, the Doobies
2: one's quite good. There's one of the Doobie brothers. I was going to say,
0: Sophie ellis Baxter looks sensational. Which is not what you might, might say about the doobie brothers, the Doobie brothers who've who, who turned up to do well I saw them doing black water in their various homes, but, but it' interesting one, yeah. to see their homes wasn 't it
2: oh, incredible, incredible, which are all the same aren 't they just capacious spaces, with vast numbers of musical instruments? Patrick Simmons has a kind of an old church organ in the back of his kitchen, you know. And you you feel very envious actually. And uh, yeah, that's pretty good, but it, they do look a bit that don't they? Do you remember the amount of time that, well, I know you wouldn't have done because you had better things to do, but I remember we spent ages staring at the cover of the Captain and Me when it came out, which must've been in the early seventies, I think, which had a picture of a, a, a motorway overpass, which just abruptly ended. And underneath that was the band dressed in 19th century Western garments. Do you remember the stage coach?
0: Yeah. Uh, do you remember
2: uh, that cover? I remember, do you remember uh, the, one, the one. It meant, the one. Is
0: if it meant anything? The one I always, the one I always think about with the Doobie Brothers was. Is it called Toulouse Street? I think it yeah. is Toulouse Street. It was second album probably, and there they had a photograph of them, uh, styled of them in what was ostensibly a kind of turn of the century New Orleans bordello, where they were. You know, they had. Uh, You know, attractive models dressed in kind of lingerie, draping themselves all over the members of the Doobie Brothers, who I think were the the least prepossessing groups. (laughs) (laughs) And also, Mark, you forget one important thing they were naked. They They were were naked. naked. There was a stage when (laughs) guys in bands, many of whom were staggeringly out of condition, (laughs) it looked as as if they never thought about being in condition. Allowed themselves to be photographed naked. They thought it was. They thought it was a bit of a laugh. There's a picture of the Almond brothers in a river. You ever seen that one? There or is. Brothers there yeah, is. All naked. There is a picture. There's a picture of canned heat out there oh, in the God. and the long grass, <laughs> <laughs> including the uh, the statuesque Bob. Bob the Bear,
2: who must have weighed in at about twenty five stone on a good day. <laughs> Oh my Lord. But,
0: uh, So there are all kinds of types. And the Doobie Brothers, uh, what's the name of the, the really thin one? Uh, is that Tom Johnson? I'm very bad on the names of the Doobie Brothers. I can't remember. He, he was so thin that they used to, as they used to say, he had to pass a place twice to cast a shadow.
2: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if he stood sideways, he'd disappear into the railings. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant
0: oh <laughs> uh, the... lord <laughs> sorry about that sorry about that so yeah but sorry. yeah but, so if you think of any uh, more examples of unprepossessing physical uh, one, specimen, l- one interesting lockdown thing,
2: yeah one interesting lockdown thing which our producer magic alex just mentioned to us was that in germany they now have drive-in raves did you know about this in driving there's a dj playing you just turn up in your cars Turn up your cars. Obviously, with the people you're self-isolating with and you can't leave your car. Obviously, EJ plays his mu- plays, plays a load of music. And, uh, you know, shouts kind of, give me ten fingers. And you you apparently have to... Su- I don't know how that works. Because the whole thing about a rave is you've got to... Um, it's physical movement and proximity with other people, isn't it? But you have to sit in your car and uh, somehow kind of, um, you know, get involved.
0: That's bizarre. I, I can't see things like that at all. I can't see it working because they... They just sound really supplier-led to me rather than demand-led. They do completely Everyone will think, that sounds like a great idea, and when they get there, they'll discover it. it isn't. It doesn't quite <laughs> work. But anyway. It doesn't work at all. Anyway, yeah. we shall see how that, how that all um, shakes down in the fullness of time. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. Here's a pop theory. It's pretty much impossible in popular music. For somebody taking the stage wearing glasses to be regarded as a bit of a sex bomb. OK, And sex bomb is an important part of the kind of the popular music mix. But if you take the stage wearing glasses, you're pretty much saying to the audience, "I'm not one of those people. I am a bit of a nerd. I'm a bit edgy, I'm a bit interesting, but I'm not like that pretty lead singer at the front, okay? Is that the case? Does that theory stand <laughs> up? Do you think, Mark? What do you think?
2: Well, God, the, the first person you'd immediately think of, apart from Buddy Holly, obviously, is uh, is Elvis Costello. And Elvis Costello, if you read his um, his memoir, which I know you did, there's a bit in it where he says he's about seventeen or something, and he 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 he, uh, he sees an interview with Bonnie Raitt, who says, "Girls don't make passes at men who wear glasses." that old adage, and uh, he takes this very seriously and clearly decides, I am going to wear glasses, and that is therefore, as is the case actually with most of these people, that it's going to shape my entire visual image because the message with Elvis Costello is, I'm complicated, isn't it? You know, I I interviewed once he said these songs are broadly about revenge, Guilt and Anger. And even his love songs, you know, Alison, oh, you know, you let that little friend of mine take off your party dress. They're very, very bitter and twisted and complicated. So it's not an easy ride with Elvis Costello. So certainly, and in fact, he had a, did he have a chat show called Spectacle later in his life? I think he did. It's so it. Elvis Costello, your, your point is proved.
0: And of course, and a lot of that he got, you know, it was a very much a kind of self-conscious adaptation of the Buddy Holly cell, wasn't it? When he arrived in 1976. I think they used to say in publicity, they used to say around him, people used to say, What's he like? And they would say, He oh, would like Buddy Holly on acid, you know, which was like saying he looked like, he looks like the previous singer who had those kind of specs, but obviously with a with a sort of 70s twist, you know. And, and and Buddy Holly is absolutely fascinating because still, however many years since he died, you, it's still possible to summon up the idea of Buddy Holly just by those spectacles, isn't it? You know, and so musicals and films and things based on the legacy of Buddy Holly just conjure up those spectacles, and you've you've got the picture of Buddy Holly in your mind still. So, are there any That's so others? True. Well, are there, there, any there others? are. Hank Hank Marvin. I mean, Hank Marvin, kind of guitar
2: nerd. Um, I would say, yes. Yeah, Hank Marvin's entire, again, visual image, completely, completely contained by uh, the idea of wearing glasses. Nana Sort Of a
0: yeah. kind of librarian look, didn't she? Yeah, that was it. It was kind of a, a bit of a defensive move, wasn't it? You know, wearing the spectacles on stages on telly is like saying, Well, you're not supposed to fancy me, you know what yeah. I mean? That's why I'm, I'm checking your books back in. You know, <laughs> this <laughs> one's overdue. <laughs> this Judy Sill, Spir- there's another one. There's another librarian for you. Yes, yeah. this <laughs> has been out, but
2: it's long overdue. She was a kind of oddball kind of plain Jane, wasn't she? Um, I mean Jarvis Cocker's interesting, Was Jarvis Cocker, part of his act was I think a skinny you know enigmatic student boffin would you say
0: Jar- Jarvis Cocker a rare exception to to the point in that he, he's a lead singer wh- who wears glasses, yeah, because most lead singers do not wear glasses. it would be not, it, it just wouldn't fit. The the role that they they have on stage would it at all if if they had glasses? Can you imagine if if if, if, I want you to imagine for a second Led Zeppelin fronted (laughs) by Robert Plant (laughs) wearing glasses,
2: (laughs) peering over his frames to look at the front to inspect the front row. I say, (laughs) who do we have here? A lot of girls, and they appear to be screaming. Yeah, it no, doesn't actually, no, I disagree. It I disagree. Work. There, there were I can think of at least two lead singers. Morrissey, when he started, part of his whole concept was the National Health Specs, which was a very, very clever kind of art statement, wasn't it? It was, it was basically saying, "I'm not like you know, Duran Duran. I sit around leading reading Penguin Modern Classics." <laughs> and actually, there was a guy, Dave. I can't. You I didn't even probably won't remember them. When I was on Select Magazine, he used to write quite a lot about a group called Kingmaker, who had a um, a lead singer called Michael Wright. I think his name was. And his whole thing was, I'm trying to look cute like Harry Potter, really. Um, <laughs> so maybe I don't know. But um, kingmaker and, and, in, in, and ro- glasses in rock music, because the classic is Glenn Cornick of Jethro Tull, <laughs> who looked absolutely. I'm sorry, but he did look a bit dorkish, didn't he? I'm Big sure. I'm sure. Playing.
0: I'm sure many listeners to this podcast right now would just putting their arms in the air, going, I hope he's going to mention Glenn Cornick.
2: Sorry, he hasn't (laughs) mentioned Glenn Cornick yet. (laughs) A few points for
0: that. A wild turkey. That's right, that's right. (laughs)
2: But no, I mean, Elton John's another way Elton John, you know, decided he was going to wear specs and then had to make the specs part of the, well, if you will, spectacle, didn't it? I mean, he got to the point where he drew attention to them and they became more and more absurd. And then he had ones with windscreen wipers on them. And, you know, the whole thing was to kind of, was to, you know, to to overplay the idea that, yes, I know I'm wearing glasses and thus I'm not a sex symbol.
0: Now, and then there's also, there's a subcategory here, which is interesting. Which you could almost write a book about, which is rock stars who wear sunglasses, because sunglasses you can be a sex bomb wearing sunglasses, can't you? Because they hint that you're oh, yeah, kind but of there's a myth. you're mysterious. Yep, yeah, you're enigmatic. You're uh, who are the
2: ones who would never seen? Ian Hunter. Ian, Hunter, Ian Hunter never seen without shades on. And I suppose Bono, but that's different. Bono claims to have, I think he has got an eye, some kind of eye problem or something where he has to wear. Is that his excuse? I don't know. Roy Orbison, too. Roy Orbison wore shades shade all the time, but didn't he have some problem with his light in, in his eyes?
0: I, I, he might have done. Have you got, you haven't got a pair of sunglasses handy, have you? You don't. You, you, I haven't. Right, well, I'm just going to suggest this to male listeners for the, you know, if it's warm weather this weekend and you, you've you got shorts on, just take an, an average pair of sunglasses and place the sunglasses round your bare leg, just below the knee. Hey, presto, Roy Orbison, OK? It just looks <laughs> like Roy Orbison. <laughs> we used to do this at school. <laughs> It was the only really impression that a pop star anybody could do. Roll up the trouser leg, put a pair of sunglasses on, just below the knee. in on little <laughs> <laughs> That is absolutely so, sensational. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the then there's the curious kind of um the the odd odd shape spectacles like Roger McGuinn of the Birds used to wear those. Oh, tiny yeah, yeah, little square, one. um, square ones, didn't he, that were tinted? And yeah, clearly he couldn't see a damn thing through them at all. But it was just his way of looking at the camera, wasn't he, when he was on TV? Mike Ratlich's oh, soft machine. Again, the arms are up.
2: Sir, 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 mention Mike <laughs> Ratlich with his rectangular <laughs> shapes. He had exactly the same ones. No, you're right, you wouldn't have been able
0: to see a single thing. <laughs> and uh, George Clinton, George Clinton, usually had bizarre specs, didn't he? He, he, he always seemed to be photographed yeah, with bizarre specs. So you've got you've got to make it you've got to make the specs a part of the act, haven't you? People can't overlook the specs, can they? They can't look round the specs. But John Lennon, see the person, John Lennon, interestingly,
2: didn't did he? John Lennon made a made a point of deciding he who was incredibly kind of myopic, wasn't he? That he couldn't go on stage. Wearing glasses because it just it just didn't work, did it? And therefore he couldn't see anything. So those, you see those. He could barely see the other members of the group, could he? You know, he, he's there. He was there squinting at the front row, trying to work out what the hell was going on.
0: <laughs> Do you think that was a way of t- dealing with nervousness as well? I mean, there must be an odd thing to go on stage in front of all those people uh, at Shea Stadium or whatever, and think I can't see a thing. You know, surely it would help to be able to see things, or, or you know, maybe he yes, just preferred to keep it you know keep it at, at, Trying to at pretend a half, that there aren't
2: 55,000 people out there
0: exactly yeah yeah no, yeah no, very, but very, because john lennon didn't wear specs for years and then post well how i won the war wasn't it when he appeared in that in that that film uh I have was a grip this weed. 1966 is it something like that and and yeah. he uh, he's he, the stills I remember the stills appearing in the in the music papers at the time it's like, oh, look, John Lennon in a pair of national health specs. That's a really curious idea of kind of plays with the idea of pop star glamour. And, of course, then later on when he adopted, when he started wearing specs in public, it, there were those kinds of specs, weren't they? And so people used to sell in the small ads at the back of the NME. They would sell when they are John Lennon glasses, wouldn't they? You know... Just yeah, there the was granny glasses. The granny glasses too, wasn't yeah. the granny right. glasses. It was it was yeah, like that John Lennon yeah. look, wasn't it? When he finally got round to doing it. But you know, I, so I still challenge you to imagine Robert Plant with a pair of specs. To imagine, you know, if the Rolling Stones took the stage and Keith Richards was wearing a pair of specs, it's not happening, is it? It's just it's not happening. working, is it? It's Hello. What? We. What? Oh, there are people out there, aren't there? Oh, <laughs> good lord! <laughs> I say, who's that over there? that's
2: Charlie. I... Yeah, yeah.
0: So, if if anybody can think of any uh, exception to that rule or anything we've missed out, you know, please uh, get in touch and uh, and you know, let's keep this let's keep this red ball in the air, shall we? In the air. And I'm sorry that I've already stolen uh, Glenn Cornick.
2: <laughs> That's ta- he's oh. taken, girls.
0: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Relax. Yeah, one at a time, girls, he's married. You're listening to The Word
1: Podcast. It's a lockdown lock-in.
0: Yesterday's papers in which we delve through old editions of the music press. What you got there? Well, I've been up in the attic and had a trawl,
2: and I've come up with an absolutely fantastic edition of Rolling Stone. It's a special Beatles anniversary issue in February 1984, it was 20 years after their appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, oh, and now right. they are on the cover, being showered with ticker tape. It's, it's I think, it's really, it's incredibly comprehensive. Years. And twenty years since the Ed Sullivan Show, which, of course, in America was what, what kind of broke them, you know. So you've yeah, got yeah. very little of what else is going on in the world. There's the thing about Woody Allen and Mia Farrow and the success of Broadway, Danny Rose, that dates it. Those two working together. Ja- Michael Jackson been staying in the, in the Royal Plaza Hotel and insisted on having thirty nine of his golden platinum albums to decorate his suite. Uh, Mick Jones has been sacked from The Clash. And, yes, they're at number one with 90125, Duran Duran's oh. Seven and the Ragged Tiger at number five in the album charts, and Dylan's Infidels at number nine. And it's all full of stuff about the police. But, no, the Beatles stuff, is, I thought, was absolutely brilliant, incredibly comprehensive. It's got an intro by Paul Theroux, who rather cleverly appropriates the Beatles culturally. So very that's very Louis Theroux's sense. father. That's Louis Theroux's father, exactly, travel writer. And he talks about how the Beatles started out imitating Elvis, Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly. Uh, and not the fruity-voiced English singers and, and music hall that they kind of grew up in. So they're very much trying to say that without us, you know, they, yeah, they would, there would be no Beatles. There's a great piece by Cindy Lauper talking about going to the airport when she must have been about 10, I think, and screaming in, in, in complete ecstasy and covering her face with her hands and therefore missing them. And when she takes her hands away, she can only see the back of their heads. Jackie DeShannon writes a fantastic thing about being on, the, on tour with the States and travelling in aeroplanes and watching Lennon writing, I'm a loser. Carly Simon, there's a brilliant thing about going to see them in Toronto and being absolutely furious that they scream. The crowd screams, we want the Beatles, all the way through Dusty Springfield's support set. There's a little interview with George Harrison's sister when she talks about trying to get into his hotel. She keeps telling, telling the security people, I'm his, I'm his sister, I'm George Harrison's sister. She said, like, sweetheart, they all say that. Move along. <laughs> and uh, there's a, an interview with a guy who, uh, who stood in for Ed Sullivan on the Ed Sullivan Show at the Soundcheck, wearing a Beatles wig, stood in for George. Do you remember George was... Um, yeah,
0: when well, he was in laryngitis. Well, I love that it, idea. Yeah.
2: And that's for his entire life. He'll have a photograph of himself with the Beatles. With the and Beatles. The Beatles wig yeah. on. You know, it's absolutely yeah. brilliant. And then the yeah. last one I really like was where they meet Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, and there was this incredibly complicated thing to set up this kind of publicity picture, which they thought would be good for both of them. And at the end, uh, Ali says to them, uh, he says, uh, you must be making a lot of money. You can't be as stupid as you look. John Lennon says, but you are, <laughs> which is great. Ooh. And uh, so, yeah. yeah, no, dangerous a, dangerous very, thing to say the heavyweight you, champion to, of the to world. a heavyweight boxer. It is, yeah, but it's a very solid, very solid addition. And it's funny, it reminded me you and I were talking the other day about Meryl Streep uh, on YouTube. And anyone could find it if you put in Meryl Streep Shea Stadium, you'll see a picture of her. I think she's just turned 16. And her, and her mate are being interviewed about being at Shea Stadium watching the Beatles, and uh, it's her first ever kind of sighting. Really amazing.
0: It's good. So you, you mentioned ca- you mentioned Carly Simon there. I don't know yeah. if I've ever said this to you. Have you read Carly Simon's autobiography, Boys in the Trees? No, Trace? I haven't. No, it's really no. good. It's really good. And uh, in the uh, in the mid sixties, she had uh, Carly Simon terribly kind of. Well-born, well-connected, beautiful young thing, um, and she formed a group with her sister Lucy. They used to do folk tunes, and they went to um, they went to London in the mid '60s. Tried to get some gigs, I think. Uh, and <laughs> everywhere they went, cause clearly you look at pictures, they think they were so beautiful. <laughs> they, they, they were kind of Stunning. disreputable gentlemen of a certain age, Terry Thomas type. So we're going, yes. hello, my dear. Hello. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's really... And anyway, they go They go back. There's a wonderful incident in the book where they go back to New, to New York on the Queen Mary. And and travelling on the Queen Mary is Sean Connery. <laughs> who's just, you know, kind of newly world-famous as the Bond yeah, fantastic. star, you know. And uh, they decide to invite him to their cabin for drinks. <laughs> the two Good of God, them, you know. And uh, wouldn't you know it, he comes. <laughs> and so they're there, like, you know, she writes this fantastic chapter about I can't, can't imagine what he must have been expecting. You know, They were just not equal to the moment at all. It's just a wonderful vignette. That's, that's an amazing story. Life. They, the two of them are like 17, 18 years old or whatever, uh, looking absolutely fabulous. And there they are with you the know, sexiest man on earth as he was at the time, absolutely. Uh, Jean Connery. So what I've got in front of me is I've got the first issue of a magazine which came out in May 1980 which Good. I think I make is 40 years ago. 40 so it be years the face? ago. Is that the face? It's the face. I've got the yeah, first yeah, issue yeah. of The Face. you remember who was on the cover of the first issue of The Face? Yes, I do. I can tell you now. It was Jerry
2: Dammers. I think it might be a Chalky Davis photograph. He's photographed, bizarrely, walking up some stairs. And looking it's at the, the least
0: likely cover picture you can ever possibly imagine. It is. He's walking it up is. some stairs backstage at a gig. And... Uh, it's, it's quite interesting. Be, well, it's very interesting because it's it's quite slim. It's only 64 pages because there wasn't much advertising around in those days. And, uh, and it's also just before the arrival of Club Culture. So it's all about two-tone, really. You know, it, it's got big features about yeah. the specials and madness and... Uh, and it's got interviews with, uh, you know, there's Ian Dury, there's, uh, there's Jimmy Percy, there's uh, there's Public Image, there's j- The Jam and so forth. But there's, there's none of that kind of, you know, that kind of the Blitz world and all that stuff which was going to arrive not long afterwards and was, was ultimately was going to provide the kind of... Uh, the wave that the, the face was going to ride through the rest of the, of the eighties. And of course the other thing that strikes you is you go back and you look at these magazines, they're mainly in black and white you know, because there's very little yeah. color, you know, people couldn't afford that kind of thing. It's uh, and I found and it's that unimaginable, thought, isn't it? That, Sorry, I was going to say, it's
2: unimaginable, that club culture, th- th- that you can't see it in colour because it's, it's entirely about colour. Actually, it's not
0: true necessarily of, of two-tone,
2: but everything else was vividly colourful, wasn't it? So it's
0: hard and to... I, and I've got the curious uh, the curious sensation of... I'm looking at a spread here where there's a feature about... There's a feature about Atletico spiz. Uh, there's a feature about um, scar reissues. There's the obligatory picture of Wendy O. Williams of the Plasmatics with her, uh, you know, <laughs> with her bosom out. And there's a feature that I wrote that I have no recollection of whatsoever. I interviewed a New York oh DJ called Jane Hamburger. I know, I, can, I cannot remember anything about it at all. But the amazing thing is it's 40 years ago. It's got It's got an advert that for magazines, The Correct Use of Soap. Which must have been the uh, you know the, the, the big new one of the big new albums of the time. It's got posters of Pauline. Black well, that and issue, drummer. and that issue was was produced by
2: Nick Logan and uh, his designer. I guess it might have been Steve Bush, in it the offices Steve, of that? Smash Hits where you and I were working. So uh, and they were down in the, in the little room at the end, weren't they? And, uh, and we were all kind of... It was all shoulders to the grindstone. We were all helping out. I wrote some pieces. I think for that first issue and second issue, I did an interview with, with Chrissy Hind, I can remember. We all kind of... We all mucked in. Very exciting, wasn't it? It was an amazingly exciting time.
0: I can remember, Nick, um, he had to pay the printer's bill for the first issue. No, he had to pay, he had to pay the printer for the second issue before he had the, any revenue from the first one and he didn't know how he was gonna do it and I offered to lend him some money <laughs> I didn't have much money at all I, I made some offer I said if you want any help <laughs> I could have had five percent probably <laughs> would have you done could. me all right. you may have
2: missed <laughs> an opportunity so he just took out a little <laughs> bundle of notes and tucked it in his top <laughs> pockets. Here you go, go, mate, go on. <laughs> Get your second issue out. God, that really was... It was pillar to Post, wasn't it? And Post... Oh, another, complete hand-to-mouth. Oh,
0: hand-to-mouth,
2: completely. completely. Yeah, that's a
0: yeah, brilliant, was, brilliant magazine. Yeah.
2: Incredible yeah.
0: magazine.
1: The Word Podcast. What's wrong with being sexy?
0: So the death of Millie Small um, has an opportunity to reflect on genuinely unique figure In pop music. When was that record to hit, My Boy Little Lolly? That art. was
2: only 64? Yeah, it's only 64. And uh, if I remember rightly, she was spotted by Chris Blackwell, who was living out in Jamaica, wasn't he? I think she was spotted at the age of 12 or something in a talent contest. And the interesting thing is, I mean, I can remember, I'm old enough to remember that coming out. I was whatever I was, 10, I guess. And you kind of, you didn't know anything about her at all. But he'd actually been, he had his eye on developing her as a, as a recording artist for some time, hadn't
0: he? Isn't that right? Well, he brought her to um, he brought her to the UK, and she was what, sixteen, I think, um, and he, he he put her in a house in in, in Forest Hill, uh, in London, and uh, and kind of just he, he groomed her, you know, to, to develop her as a as a potential star. I think he actually sent her to the Itali Conti stage school for a short period of time. And they That's tried right. various things, and and then they eventually picked up this song, My Boy Lollipop, which had been a kind of really minor kind of R&B hit of a year or so earlier. Um And the copyright apparently changed hands in a card game and then ended up with the property of, of Morris <laughs> Levy, the kind of gangster figure who always managed to get hold of really valuable copyrights. And it they, they, they was re- arranged by Ernest Ranglin, who was a Jamaican musician. But it was recorded at Olympic Studios, I think, in, in the UK, with English musicians reading charts. You know what I mean? These were guys in, in shirt sleeves, probably wearing braces, you know what I mean, yeah. who, who played, or played on this record. Uh, but that was pipes ostent- in between tapes. Yeah, probably, probably doing that, <laughs> but that was ostensibly, you know, the first kind of um, first Scar hit. It was a, clearly a, a huge hit, an enormous hit, both in in the UK and in, in the United States. Uh, and uh, which know, gave him the money to invest in in, in the record label wasn't it? I mean, well yeah because he that, where it a was lot already of profit came from. Well, he was already doing stuff, you know, he was looking for opportunities to bring things in from Jamaica, you know cause it's the same language, and a lot of shared culture and so forth. Um, but yeah, My Ball lollipop was clearly the the absolute the absolute breakthrough because it was an enormous hit. In absolutely enormous. Of course, she never, she never, she never followed it. But it, I mean, it, it, it's just—it it fascinates me because it's, it's, it's the most inauthentic pop, pop record you've ever heard in your life. You know what I mean? In the sense of, it is not what it purports to be. You know, it is not the sound of Kingston, Jamaica, is it? You know, it was the sound not of Southwest or London, <laughs> whatever. Yes, no, just has incredible <laughs> right. vibrancy to it. You know. Still to this day, you you know, you could put that on at a a kind of wedding reception, couldn't you? And and people would just fill the floor. You really would, you know. It just sounded so fantastically alive, you know. It's a a magical, corny record, but a magical record as well, you know. And um, yeah, I think later on in, in life, I think she had some. Financial hard times, where I think Chris Blackhawk kind of sorted her out latterly and uh, arranged for her a place to live and so forth. And so she probably participated in performance royalties, even though Maurice Levy no doubt got the publishing and all the more valuable side of it. But, yeah, but, but stroke a real genius kind of by it. him.
2: Yeah. Stroke a genius by him to have to have had the, the kind of foresight to think that she would develop into something and to have put all that investment into... into Because she had elocution lessons, didn't she?
0: Well, yeah, you would thing. do, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what you did. You, your pop star you went, yeah, yeah, you created. It was a Simon Cowell type number, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It wasn't what people normally associate with Chris Blackwell, you know. it, yeah. was, uh, it was doing whatever was uh, was needed, you know, and it it, it absolutely worked. Uh, yeah, in, in her case, for a very short period of time.
2: And another, another kind of sad news too. Although bizarrely, we were talking about him on the on the podcast last week when we was Dave Greenfield, of Dave the Stranglers. Stranglers, the Stranglers. Was, uh, yeah, of only seventy one, I think. And I just, I just re-reading about the Stranglers, I'd forgotten they were old, weren't they? In comparative terms, yeah, their first hit in <laughs> nineteen seventy seven. Jed Black was already thirty nine. Jed Black, oh. Jed Black is what two years older than the, any of the Beatles. Three, four years older than members of the Stones. <laughs> Incredible, really. And um, Hugh and Dave were, I think, twenty-eight when they had their first hit. John Jack Burnell was twenty-seven. I mean, they were real old, real old school. Dave Greenfield had actually played in American uh, uh, bases in Germany in bands. I mean, really old school stuff. And the, I think it's interesting how how important a part of that band he was. You know, if you if you go to YouTube, you can find um, you can find footage and um, and sound uh, files of the Stranglers when they were just a two two guitar bass and drums group before he joined, and of course they're indistinguishable really from anybody else. That's what made the difference, don't you think? Yeah. That keyboard sound. Yeah. If you listen to yeah. his solo on "Walk On By," it's absolutely phenomenal. And and Golden Brown, you know, that's it's so complicated. And they had that, you know, there it is. It's sort of rich and ornate organ figures and it's six eight time signatures and stuff, and he just. They and he particularly brought a kind of musicianship to that group, which none of the punk rock bands had. And also, they didn't; they weren't particularly political either, so
0: they weren't dated by what they were songs about. They could just. Well, were we talking about the other day but that no, you went to a, see? Did you see them in Battersea Park, the famous, the infamous Battersea? Oh, Park I saw the Battersea
2: Park, Park. Yes, I, I think it was September the sixteenth, nineteen seventy-eight. I was sent by the enemy to review them. You're absolutely right. Again, you forget, you forget. Just that times have changed, you know. And halfway through the set, they were playing outdoors, Battersea Park, and they brought on a load of strippers. <laughs> and a load of girls came on, tore their clothes off, for what I assume must have been nice and sleazy, or uh, or maybe peaches or whatever. Oh, yes, know. yes. And yes, uh, and that was considered to be okay at the time. You know, I can't remember what I... I think, I think I was slightly disapproving in my review for The Enemy.
0: Because oh, I imagine the, you, you would, would be slightly disapproving. You. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're a because little bit The, enemy, the, the enemy wouldn't
2: have allowed for that. <laughs> Yeah, absolute <laughs> disgrace. <laughs> but it was pretty amazing to think about. I can remember there were all sorts of police problems and was it okay to have these kind of basically naked women throwing themselves around the stage in Patsy Park? Yeah, I went to see them in the Roundhouse too before that. I remember they had Hell's Angels of Security. There was a moment, maybe only lasted for about six months, when there was a real reign of terror, wasn't there? The Stranglers, the Stranglers was a, was a thrilling and exciting... Well, their amazing, first uh, album,
0: Rattus Norvegicus, that was a big chart album at a time when nothing else that kind of could claim any kind of kinship with punk was. You know, they just got slightly ahead of the game. They had a good record company behind them. They had hit singles, and they went on top of the pops, didn't they, and all that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah. And a load of people who wouldn't have been caught dead buying a Clash record bought a Stranglers record. Because um, it's interesting. Because it sounded the, the, old-fashioned, really. It sounded reassuringly a bit like The Doors. Um it did, but you, you talk about those age differences as if they were you know' because in terms of actual years, there were very few years' difference, really, but it's just that at that time there was such a kind of division between old and young, you know you're either you're either on one side or the other, weren't you at at that time, you know, and so there's those the, the number of years dividing them became really in, in, exaggerated in, in, people's, uh, in people's view. Completely, because actually
2: I think, I can't remember when Johnny Rotten was born, but I think it's 55. So in fact, Johnny Rotten was probably only about three years younger than John jacques Bernal. But there did seem to be an enormous divide that Johnny Rotten was on the side of the young people and the Stranglers were on the side of the old people, you know. But don't you think
0: so, it was also because it, what the, the Stranglers had was previous you know and at the time nobody talked about having any previous you know whereas no. at, at, hugh Cornwell had been in a band with richard thompson at school emil yeah. and the detectives yeah emil you know. and the detectives i remember that well, so so richard thompson was young to be a member of fairport convention he, he joined them he was like 16 17 or whatever and these these guys like you know hugh Cornwell were were slightly old to old, be a new, to be new sensation in Yes, yeah, and so it's so he, but kind of I upset love that people's way, people's thinking. I love the
2: way that everyone had to eradicate their past, didn't they? Because actually, Johnny Rotten had grown up listening to Van de Graaff Generator, hadn't he? And Adam and had grown up listening to kind of Argent, and they loved all these groups, you know, but they weren't allowed to talk about them in interviews. No, 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 Ground was Zero, so, was kind so, of Iggy Pop, and the com- Stooges, you know, the Double Underground, bond, or whatever, David Bowie, yeah, possibly. I know, yeah, amazing. Yeah. And another one, another again, really sad news, which we only heard about yesterday. While we're recording this today on Thursday, was, was Florian Schneider of, um, of of Kraftwerk. My two sons are in absolute, you know, my two sons have been up all night, like in a ring of candles, you know, um, in their respective places, playing old Kraftwerk records
0: because they absolutely adored them. But that's another sad story, wasn't it? And he was pretty young too. But I, I was thinking about when when. Autobahn came out, was it 75, I think, or 74? Um, and what people don't realise, and I can remember this really clearly, is that it was a novelty record at the time. People thought, that's a funny idea. Here's a song, here's a record that just doesn't really change, you know, and it's supposed to reflect the monotony of the, the motorway. Tedium, yeah. Uh, driving experience. And guess what? They've got an album where they do the thing even longer. You know what I mean? (laughs) And so it was was kind of like, it wasn't at the time, nobody at the time embraced it as kind of... uh, Oh, this is a brave new world, you know. They just thought this is kind of curious. This is like Nut Rocker by Bean Bumble and the Stingers or something, you know. What I mean? It's a kind of. It's a kind of <laughs> joke. I've got here, um, Rob Robert Criscow's um re- review of Autobahn, which appeared, in, I think, the Village Voice at the time, and he called them the Iron Butterfly of Uber Rock. Oh, Mike Fee- Oldfield. Mike Oldfield for unmitigated simpletons. <laughs> uh, you oh know, th- that, th- that was the way it was looked at. I mean, a lot of people liked it, but they sort of thought it was slightly funny at the same time. You know, because the well, idea I remember... of music that just didn't change. That moment hadn't arrived. You know, that moment came not long afterwards, but it had not arrived at that point. You expected music at the point to have a kind of development... To have verses and to have a bridge and a chorus and so forth and to kind of go somewhere. That was the expectation of music. Whereas no, this true. was trying to do something yeah. very different. It was kind of and it, it was it was it was doing things that art music had previously done, I suppose. You know, that I don't know. Uh you know, uh what what do you call him? Uh Terry Riley and people like that. But you know, yeah. That wasn't in the mainstream. Whereas this was suddenly on top of the pops and it was in the mainstream. And it was, but also genuinely revolutionary. Yeah, but they're an example
2: of a group coming along. Uh, yeah, at a time when there wasn't quite the kind of critical um, framework to understand what, what they were doing, because I can remember that actually they got quite a lot of bad press. Do you remember them? I and the enemy and the melody maker weren't terribly enthusiastic about Kraftwerk in the early days. Well, I think I was you looking for the whole idea the was it because they got there, they they were reviewing it with their kind of rock hats on. Yes. And again, this is robotic and this is synthetic. This is not real music. Do you remember that? The idea that you, you didn't have a bass and drums, you know, that people were, were using as their kind of framework, of reference, they were using kind of um, the Edgar Broughton band and Eddie Knot, than, you know. I've got and Hot Rods. I've, I've got a, got a review in front
0: fake and me. artificial. I've got a review in front of me, written by Jeff Barton in Sounds in September 1975. Jeff, a lovely bloke, I uh, yeah. used to work with, um, and he says, and I, I, I'm not taking the Mickey because we would all have said this probably. He says, "Autobahn, when it's eventually played, is merely fair." the band could have played it with more gusto, a bit more schnell, if you like, you know. See me, could do better. Yeah, but that's kind of a classic example of what you're talking about, that you, you, you should play it louder, or you should play yeah. it faster, or you, exactly. you should celebrate it. Whereas the whole point about it was they didn't do any of that stuff at all. It was completely controlled, and they they kind of turned the switch on and left the stage, and it would have... Yeah, you it know, probably carried on. Although I think Autobahn was still made with some kind of traditional instruments. Later on, they they were more f- fully automated. But we we didn't understand at that point that that was how music was going to go. You know, that it was Completely. just at the point of the beginning Completely. of automation. I can remember the
2: idea that. You- yeah, the idea that you didn't really need to be at a Kraftwerk concert because they were just pressing a button and playing their records. And very soon, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years later, people were saying, this is this is the future. They could they could just be projecting hologrammatic images of themselves and playing simultaneous concerts in six capital cities at one time you know and suddenly the group who'd been laughed at for being robotic and synthetic and somehow rather false were the kind of velvet underground or the Beatles of electronic music because that's the way they're regarded aren't they and quite right uh, yeah, they're the yeah. absolute yeah. cornerstone of electronic music you talk to anybody in the uh, in the edm world you know and they are they are absolutely the founding fathers you know i guess it's, it's, it's just fascinating how things change
1: the Word Podcast, walking the digital dog since 2007.
0: Well, that about wraps it up, as they used to say in the world of radio. Uh, We've got the usual uh, quiz this weekend on Saturday. Saturday tea time. It's a new tradition, and that's specially for our um, Patreon uh, supporters who've uh, signed up to support us via Patreon, and we're very pleased to have them, and we send them a link. Uh, about 10 to 5 on a Saturday evening and then we get them all on board and we have a bit of a bit of a game of can you tell who it is yet uh, and <laughs> so we'll finish now with uh, Mark I think you're going to read to us the names of the people who very kindly stepped up to the plate to be our new patrons this week over to you Mark I have and I thought I might adopt that Do you remember-
2: Remember I mean, that voice they used to have in those uh, in those uh, cinema trailers, which is uh, which I used to love that kind of American American voice. It'd go horror beyond your wildest imaginings. Or they'd always start in a world, you know, in a world where death is love and love is hate and hate is cruelty.
1: That's the voice I'm going to use. We'd like to. The darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour is close at hand. We would like to thank Matthew Smith, David Cinequist. Lawrence Howell, Kim Buckler, Stephen Lamb, John Innes, Laureline, Michael Beard, Barry Nicholson, and not forgetting Kieran Crowley and Mike Maher, and somebody who just simply refers
2: to himself as Paul, and Dr. Volume, that's a great name, and Grant Hobson, and Janet Davis, and Neil. And Paul Gorman, who's actually been on the podcast, and Meringa Van De as
1: previously mentioned, Jeremy Nichols, and Peter Morrison Bartlett, and Nick Treadwell, Martin Gurney, Steve Trace, James Miners, Sarah Pettigrew, and Mark Butler. Thank you very much for your patronage of the Word Podcast. And sleep well, my beauties. This podcast was brought to you by the Word.